Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Resilient Health Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Darren Ingalls, and joining me on the podcast today is my friend and colleague, Dr. Joel uh, Gator-Warsh, who is a holistic pediatrician in Studio City, California, and I really appreciate what uh, Dr. Joel does because he's really got one foot in both aspects of medicine. He's a conventionally trained pediatrician, but he really understands integrative and functional medicine and is really able to apply, you know, both worlds to really help children thrive uh, in the world. So Dr. Joel, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me on. And it's always a great to chat with you and great to chat with you again. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so, you know, I know that, uh, you know, you're a pediatrician by training, you know, you work with kids all day long and you're really working with both the parents and the child to help them thrive in the world, which I think you and I would both agree is just becoming more and more toxic. So when I think about, you know, healthy children, you know, does this really all start before mom really like even gets pregnant or during pregnancy? I think so much of what happens in that prenatal time or even during pregnancy is really setting the stage for, you know, what happens to kids, you know, after they're born. So can we just talk a little bit about that, that time, you know, either before mom and dad get pregnant or during pregnancy that, you know, parents need to be thinking of like the toxins in the world and what can they be doing to help make that time as optimal as possible? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's really interesting that you bring this up as a first you know, point of discussion, because I think it's so important that we do think about that, because as a pediatrician, where does my job start? It starts on day one when the baby's born in theory. But I've always said that's not true. Right. A baby is literally made of the parents. Right. And they're literally made of um, mom and, and the cells and things that are growing inside of you. And how do we not realize that our health impacts that? Right. Of course it does. We know that, of course, our health impacts that. And so everything that you do today up until the time when you have a baby, that's going to impact that to some degree. And certainly the things that you do while pregnant are going to impact that. Now, we're very lucky and 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 are the way that we are as humans and birth is a magical process. And, and there are a lot of, um, I don't know, mechanisms in place to protect babies from some of the chemicals and the toxins that we're exposed to. But definitely over the last hundred years, we're exposed to so many more chemicals and so many more toxins. And we never developed to pro process all of these. We never developed to excrete all of these things. And, and we've seen that if you look at the core blood and the studies like by the environmental working, they find hundreds of chemicals in, in the core blood. And so right. how those affect the baby? And we don't even, we can't even begin to understand. We know there are certain chemicals going to have very serious effects on the baby, but a lot of these other chemicals, we have no idea. We certainly know how, don't know how they affect each other. And just common sense being common sense, the more chemicals that you're exposed to, the worse that it is for you because you have to deal with it. And a, a newborn or preborn infant doesn't necessarily have the mechanisms to deal with that. And so it gets embedded within you. It goes through your bloodstream and who knows how that affects you long term. So, yeah, I think everything that you do matters. The foods that you eat really matter before the baby's born, after the baby's born, what you feed them. And the same thing with the chemicals. And to me, just like you mentioned, you know, we're, we're dealing with a chronic disease epidemic. We're dealing with increasing rates of basically everything. And I think that's the major factor of what we eat and, and what we're exposed to. And that starts before birth. And to me, that's probably one of the big reasons why there's such a huge chronic disease epidemic, why autism rates are increasing, why we're seeing more neurodevelopmental issues, all of these things together. I mean, there are lots of reasons. It's not just one, but we're just exposed to a toxic soup of chemicals. And if you think about a goldfish and you pour a bunch of 
chemicals in their water, they're not going to do very well, right? And that's what we're doing to ourselves. Well, and I think you consider that, you know, a lot of the chemicals out in our environment are fat soluble, which means they deposit in the fatty areas of our body. And of course, our brain is basically a big glob of fat. And for a baby who's, you know, relative, you know, head to body size is proportionally bigger, you know, that newly developing brain is going to be particularly susceptible to potentially the effect of a lot of these toxins. And, you know, what I think is absolutely fascinating and really quite terrifying is considering the enormous amount of chemicals we get exposed to and the fact that very few of them have actually been studied for their safety really and or toxicity, you know, particularly in a, a an infant or a newborn, uh, you know, we don't really know what that cumulative effect is over the course of time. You know, I, I've, I've heard multiple sources that, you know, the average American gets exposed to 88,000 chemicals a year. So I can just think, you know, as pregnant mom, and of course, as mom gets further along in the pregnancy, gets a little bit bigger, right, that, you know, those toxins can potentially accumulate. So, you know, I guess my best advice is, you know, as much as you can minimize that environmental impact, you know, particularly during pregnancy, you know, eating organic food, watching out about using chemicals around the house, pesticides, herbicides, even a lot of things like blade plugins and anything that emits any kind of aerosolized chemical, you know, as sort of as clean and as organic as you can keep your food in your environment, I think that's going to minimize that risk. Right. And I just want to emphasize the point that you made that most of these things have not been tested. I mean, first of all, if you're talking about just testing in general, the research that we have comes from the companies, right? So <laughs> how, how good a job do we really think they're doing at testing their own products? And are do we really believe every time that they're going to give us all the best data? They're going to they're going to give some data, but who knows what what they're testing? Who knows what they're hiding? And as uh, someone who's an epidemiology masters um, and statistics, I have seen I did this many years ago. But like you can really manipulate the data however you want. You're not supposed to, but it's not very hard to change around the data to get a significant outcome or to get rid of a significant outcome, depending on the inputs that you you choose. And of course, the people that are going to be doing this for these big companies are going to be brilliant and they're going to know how to manipulate the data or how to ask questions in a way so that way they find the things that they're looking for and don't find the things that they're not looking for. And that's not to say that every chemical is dangerous, but I just think that we have to realize that these companies with billions and billions of dollars know what they're doing and they're not spending those billions of dollars to create a product that isn't going to be sold. They're going to figure out ways to get around it. And it's not extraordinarily hard because there's a lot of things that don't need to be fully tested and certainly not in kids, right? Who's volunteering their kids to stick a bunch of chemicals in their brain, right? It's like, you're never going to know what it is because nobody's volunteering their kids for that. So we're just inferring based on adults and we're inferring that information based on company data that they provide themselves, that they have their own uh, statisticians working on. And I, I'm very sure that if you want to keep your job within those companies, you got to find good data, right? So they, they're not, they're not, stupid when it comes to this stuff. They, they find good good information. And sure, sometimes things get pulled back. But again, how many years does it take to pull back a chemical like glyphosate or um, you know, mercury or, or things like that? I mean, it takes decades of very clear problems. <laughs> and then many, many lawyers and many billions of dollars. And by the time they, they figured out, they probably pivoted to another similar product anyway. So it's, like, it's very difficult. And I think parents and 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 even me as a practitioner, I never realized any of this stuff. You think, oh, you know, there's the FDA watching over this and the EPA watching over this, and 
they wouldn't put something on the market if it wasn't safe. And then you get in <laughs> a little bit more and you realize that basically we have no idea what's safe. Well, I, I was at a, a lecture years ago with Eric Sertrelini, who was one of the researchers on Roundup. And he's the one that basically got the World Health Organization to say that glyphosate is a potential carcinogen causing cancer. Well, in his research, he found that the inert ingredients in Roundup were a thousand times more toxic than glyphosate. Mm -hmm. So like to your point, you know, we just don't know <laughs> with all these different chemicals, you know, what the ramification is going to be long term. And again, even if they do the research, they're looking at one chemical, one output. You know, we don't, and there's no practical way that I can think of that you can measure all of the chemicals we get exposed to. And again, what's that cumulative effect? So I guess the bottom line is, you know, we just need to do our diligence. And uh, as a, you know, I guess potential parent at that point, as much as you can mitigate that risk, uh, that's going to help you hopefully have a, the best outcome for your baby. Exactly. And and that's where bringing it back to something positive, right? Because it's, it's very scary sometimes to think about these things like, well, I can't change the air that I breathe or anything like that. But you actually do have a lot of impact on your home and the things that you do, like the water and the air inside your home. And, uh, you know, you can have plants and things like that around to clean the air. And you could choose what foods you're going to bring into your home and what you buy organic versus not. And keep in mind that your body, your body is amazing. Your children's bodies are amazing and we can detoxify and we can get rid of a lot of these chemicals. And we certainly do. Everyone's not just getting sick everywhere all the time, right? We are right. able to handle these things. But what I think is happening is the, the toxic load has just increased so much that a lot of people are just no longer able to handle it. And so the more chemicals that we're exposed to and the more inflammation that we're dealing with, the more individuals are developing chronic diseases or, or, problems from some of these things but at the same time if you look at um the fact that this was this didn't exist 30 years ago or 50 years ago to the degrees that we're seeing it now it means we have a lot of control over this and if you are mindful of these things then you can make a huge difference and for the most part that's going to be enough if you're mindful of these things and you minimize the toxic exposure then that's going to be great and enough for most kids and that's all that we can really do because again you're not going to change all of the air that's around you, right? But you can go buy some good good plants. You can buy a water filter. There are things that you can do. And if that's going to improve your water by 75% or 90%, and that's something you drink every day, that's a big load decrease. And and for most kids, that's going to be fine. And I've seen that. I've seen the kids, the families that are health conscious, they tend to be sick a lot less. They tend to have lower rates of chronic disease. Um, and, and we saw this during the pandemic. Who were the most at risk, right? Who were the most at risk? People that had comorbidities, obesity, diabetes. That's not new, right? We know this. Right. If you if you have comorbidities from and whatever disease comes your way, that increases your risk. So hopefully that's one good thing that's going to come out of the pandemic is just an awareness that how we take care of ourselves and how we take care of our bodies and the, the comorbidities that we have, these affect us in a big way. And so if we can do anything to minimize that, to prevent that, to lower our risk and to make our children as resilient as possible, then that goes a long way to having a healthy child. But if we're not doing that on the flip side, look, chronic disease is like 50% in kids. It's higher in adults. It's a huge number and it's not getting better. So it is upon us to do something about it. Well, I like the, the fact that there is a lot that can be done. And again, a lot of this, you know, we go for the low hanging fruit, go for the things that are easy to control. Again, we can't control the outdoor weather. We can't control what gets pumped in the air, but we can control our internal world. And uh, I think you get some great tips on, on controling that. I, I want to jump a little bit in kind of, okay, baby's born now. 
And uh, one of the things I see a lot in my practice that is often an obstacle for parents, it's around feeding, you know, particularly when you've got picky eaters and it becomes a fight at the dinner table. And I can just see the frustration on every parent's eyes on, I don't know how to feed this child. You know, even when it comes to food introduction, you know, I think we've got some conflicting data on, you know, should we be waiting after their year old to introduce, you know, typically highly allergenic foods, or are there some evidence that if we introduce it early that we may actually reduce the risk of having allergy? So can you share your thoughts on, you know, on feeding and food introduction? You know, what should parents be thinking about in that area? Sure. Great question. So first of all, with the allergies, I think that's the, the easier of the questions. And in terms of at least the recent research shows that the earlier you're giving things, the better in terms of allergies to to a point. So around six months is what most of that shows is the best. You can go a little earlier, um, but you don't necessarily want to be giving it on like day one of life because their, their gut's just not ready for it. So most uh, of the studies that I've seen have shown that you significantly decrease your risk if you give it on the early. And when we grew up, it was give it later. But now the, the more recent research, especially some of the research coming out of Israel, where they were looking at peanut allergies, showed a significant decrease risk if you're giving it earlier. You don't have to give a ton. It's just an introduction right. to it. You can always blend it into something, have, give one bite. But it makes sense to me logically that if your body's introduced to something, it's less likely to think of it as foreign, less likely to think of it as a problem, and therefore not attack yourself and cause an allergic reaction. So I think that logically makes sense. And, and that's what we're recommending these days. And that's what allergists are recommending. So I tell patients in general, it doesn't have to be your first food, um, but I wouldn't wait till a year or two years to introduce a peanut. I would get it in there uh, after they start eating and they're comfortable eating and you can see that they're digesting okay. Um, other places will say, yeah, you should just give it in a powder and give it before. I'm not a huge fan of giving artificial stuff. So I'm not a big fan of giving the the powders and doing that like at four or five months to introduce the allergens, but some people are very pro that. So I think either way, it's probably okay, but I'm a bigger fan of giving real food and then just giving them like a little peanut butter when they're six and a half months or seven months, put it into something. And, and for the most part, that seems to work really well for my patients. So that's that's my recommendations, at least in terms of that. The second part of your question is about picky eating. So that's always a fun, a fun topic because there is no easy answer, especially when you're talking about toddlers, um, two, three, four, they're going to be picky and that's normal. That's okay. You know, they're, they're called terrible twos for a reason or terrible threes and they're going to be independent and they're trying to assert their independence. And the two big areas that I see that in are what goes in and what comes out. So eating and then and then going to the bathroom. We see lots more constipation issues as well around that age. And so it's okay if they're a little bit picky. I think that's fine. I don't think you should get super frustrated as a parent. The biggest thing to make sure is that they're still growing. They're still getting their nutrients. They're still eating something. A lot of times parents are super worried about, oh, my kid's not eating very much, but then they're still at the 98th percentile for, for weight and height. And so that right. is much less concerning than a child who's very picky, but also not gaining weight or, or below the curves. So as long as your child is a healthy weight and height, I'm less worried about that. My recommendation for parents always is just to keep introducing things. All of the research shows that it goes down, you know, in terms of your pick, you, you decrease the amount of foods that you want to eat, and then it, it goes back up. So when you're around two or three, they might be their most picky. As they get older, they're going to get less picky. And so sometimes you just have to keep introducing foods many times. It can be as much as 50, 80, 100 times before they eat it. And if you keep introducing it, then at some point, they're, they're probably going to eat most of those things. Um, so that's, you know, I think a good positive for parents is just because they said no this time doesn't mean they're not going to eat it in a couple of years. So just keep trying. Other tricks that you can use 
um, that, that seem to work really well is using the rainbow. So for a younger kid, different colors can be really helpful, trying to get them to eat different foods of each color. Taking them with you can be really helpful, especially as those kids get older, the more that they're invested uh, in getting the food, then it seems like they're more willing to eat it. So if they go to, with you to the store and they pick out a few things, hopefully they'll try it. If you can go to a farmer's market, that's great. A lot of times at farmer's markets, you can try things. So your kid might not like apples, but there's like 20 different kinds of apples. So maybe they can try six different ones and maybe they're going to actually find one that they like. So just trying different things can be really helpful. So those are two of the the bigger tips that seem to help with a, with a picky eaters. But again, don't, don't get too too stress out about it and and know that's very very normal and and it does get better <laughs> is, is there a time along the way though where you as a pediatrician get concerned that okay yeah they're picky but now it's picky to a point where it's a detriment where they're not gaining weight they're not getting height you know at what point do you feel like there needs to be a level of intervention you know beyond just being patient with the child and hoping they'll eventually start taking in more foods and so to me, there's two different questions there. Number one is what's ideal. So obviously it's ideal if they're eating a bunch of different kinds of foods to be getting the nutrients, because if you're just eating a couple of foods, then you're not getting all the nutrients that you need, which is not great for healthy growth, but it doesn't mean you still can't be functional and be okay. Versus the child that's when you're looking at the weight and the height and the growth curves, they're not gaining weight or they're going down. So if you were a 75% child, and then you went down to 50% and then 25%. If you're seeing that curve, that's where we're getting concerned because you're not getting in enough calories. You can survive on many things. It's just not necessarily ideal, but we're a lot more concerned if you're not growing appropriately. So that's going to be our biggest concern in terms of growth or if a child's getting sick all of the time outside of what you'd expect and be normal. Again, kids get sick, so that's not abnormal. But if you're going to the hospital all the time, if there are other signs or symptoms like um, you know, you're not having hair growth or... Um, other things for nutrient deficiency that we might be looking for. Those would be the things that we'd be most concerned about, but that's super rare. Picky eaters would be most kids are two or three year picky eaters. And that's not usually super concerning other than having this discussion with the family and maybe some tips or strategies. And then I would say the last overall strategy is if you have a very picky eater, sometimes we have to look internally and think about how good of a cook we are or a chef, because sometimes you know, we're not the best cooks and and you give a kid a piece of broccoli and they won't eat it, but you prepare it in a different way and they might if it tastes better. So especially I would say again, with our generation, a lot of us grew up with eating fast food and grew up with TV dinners and, and yeah. cooking was not, was not deemed as important as it probably was 50 years or 100 years ago. And so a lot of families I take care of, the parents didn't really learn how to cook very well um, and are not great chefs. And that makes a big difference. And I've seen it many times even with my own kid, you know, certain kind of broccoli he'll eat, but not maybe a different kind or like he'll eat a kale chip from this company, but not that company. It depends on how it's prepared and, and what it tastes like. And so if you have a very picky child and you don't feel like you're a great cook, then we're lucky. We live in a time where there's so much out there in terms of you can just pop online and learn, you know, learn, watch some cooking classes or watch a TED talk or, or take a course or go, go learn. I mean, that is so important. Eating is so important. Family is so important. Mealtime is so important. And if you don't feel like that's your strong point, then that could be something that could make a huge difference in terms of their health. You going back and, and learning a little bit more about cooking. You don't have to like go to Cordon Bleu, but you know, <laughs> there, there are a lot of things where you can learn some basic skills and basic recipes or read some books and, and try out different things. And, and that could go a long way because you might think you have a picky eater, but maybe they just don't like the food that you're making. 
That's a great point. Yeah, I have a nephew who uh, we always thought was a very picky eater, but uh, when he goes over to uh, grandma's house, he eats like a horse. And we're like, wait a second, you know, but he doesn't eat at home. And we realize that at home, yeah, maybe the cooking isn't as good as grandma's cooking. And it's just really about the flavor, maybe the textures that are being prepared. But I think that's a great point that uh, sometimes the kids are only picky because they just don't happen to like that particular way the food's prepared or perhaps that specific food. You know, I, I want to ask you as well, I, you know, I can remember as a kid and you may have grown up the same way, you know, well, if you're hungry, you know, and you don't eat the food in front of you, then, you know, we're just going to let you starve. And then when you're hungry, you'll eat. You know, what's your thought on that old school, you know, just sometimes, you know, let kids go a little hungry so they, be, you know, become more willing to eat. Does that really work or is that just kind of an old wives tale? I think it works in in certain contexts. So I, I think the context where that makes sense is for the child who is the picky eater because they want to get to the other food. So you you have prepared them a very nice meal with some broccoli and some chicken and, and whatever, but they know that if they don't eat this, then you are going to be nervous that they're not getting enough food. And so you're going to give in when they ask you for cake in five minutes. So that to me is where you do have to lay the law down and not necessarily just let them have the snack after. Because if you're having a child who you're identifying has figured out the pattern that they can just not eat the food so they can get to the snack food, then I think you do have to lay down the law and say, okay, well, you know, I made this food for you and this is what we're going to eat. Maybe here's our one backup food that you can have if you don't like this food, but we're not going to get snack. Um, until you eat your eat your dinner or you're not going to get snack until you eat your lunch, whatever it is. That to me does make sense, especially when you're laying the law down of you want like breakfast, lunch and dinner and maybe two or three snacks. Then if you let them just eat whenever they want to, they might not eat the meals that you prepare. So I, I think that you have to, again, be mindful of the food that you're making, because if you're making food, they're not going to want. And that's not really fair. Uh, and I've seen a lot of books and I really like the recommendation to have a backup food available for most times. So maybe it's something simple like uh, some vegetables and hummus or something like that where it's like okay you don't want this but you can have this not something that where you're making three meals each day because that's another problem we run into right with parents who are too nice you know and then they're like okay well you don't want to eat this so i'll make you a whole different meal and then um, you know a parent is making three different meals for for dinner and that's not ideal and probably not sustainable for most people now if you want to like change it up a little bit so you're making some I don't know, pasta, and then you make some with no sauce and some with a different sauce. That might be fine and reasonable if you have different taste profiles, but you shouldn't be making three different meals. And we, I think we should try to work within to make it more sustainable because that's not usually a sustainable model for most parents. They get very exhausted. Um, so yeah, I, I think that when you're mentioning that in terms of being hardcore, you have to be reasonable with it. But I do think it, when we're talking about picky toddlers, then that does work. And most of the books say, yes, you should stick to making them eat their meal or at least have some bites of that meal. So that that's where I've seen it effective and, and actually makes sense versus just being hardcore and saying, like, no, you're never you're not going to get any food. Well, that's not fair either if it's not food they want. Now, I had a grandmother that would make you eat the same meal until you ate it. Mm -hmm. And I remember my brother getting reheated eggs, I think, for three days in a row because you wouldn't eat them. So I don't know that that's a great strategy, but uh, <laughs> I, I think that was uh, kind of the old school thought on food is uh, I think for anyone certainly who grew up during the Depression where, you know, food was more scarce and there were other issues around it. Uh, folks of that era definitely had the mindset of, you know, you, you're grateful to have food in front of you. You eat what's in front of you. And nowadays, of course, you walk into a grocery store, there's just, there's too many options. And I think that's what makes it hard too. 
is uh, the fact that there are so many options. And I think parents too give kids so many options, particularly as they get a little older. Um, again, I don't ever remember having options when I was a kid. Mom or dad made dinner and that was it. And either you ate it or you didn't. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to have diversity. It's nice to have flexibility, but uh, maybe within the confines and not giving kids so many options that, of course, if they have an option between something healthier and something not healthier, I would mm-hmm. think most kids are probably going to pick the not so healthy food because it probably tastes better. But uh, I like having those guidelines of, you know, eat the good food first and then maybe you get that little snack afterwards. Sure. And options are a great tool, you know, especially with kids. If you give them too many options or there's too wide of an array of things they can choose from, it becomes hard. But if you say, OK, what do you want for dinner, A or B, that usually works really well. And you're not giving them you're not giving them a million options, but you have two options you're willing to go with and you can let them choose. And if they pick the one that they want, then, you know, hopefully they're going to be more likely to eat it, which works very well for kids, especially at the toddler age. But the point that you bring up that I think is very important is that kids, because of the food system that we have today, we do not appreciate where food comes from. Most kids have no idea where food comes from. I think that's a big problem. And that's another way that, especially as kids get older, so maybe not as toddler age, but when you're getting into the you know, seven, eight, nine, maybe even teen years where you do have a picky eater or you do have someone that's not appreciating the food, then helping them to understand where food comes from. And it, and it doesn't come from a grocery store and it doesn't come from a magical place that has plastic wrapping. It, it comes from a garden and a, a farm and you know, taking them there, letting them see it, maybe planting a garden in your home, even if it's a really small one, uh, even on a balcony, wherever it is, just to learn a little bit about how hard it is to make food and have them try food they've created themselves. If you can get an appreciation for food, I think it makes a big difference. And I I do think that's a huge mistake that we made uh, in America and around the world is of being so um, being so far away, being so um, divided from our food in terms of how it's made, where it comes from, what what the process is. You know, we get it shipped across the world and we eat it two weeks later after it's been picked and we don't have any idea what goes into or what's been sprayed on it and how much work goes into making an apple or how much work goes into getting a carrot. It's like, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's many months. It's a lot, it's a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot goes into it. And I think we need to teach kids how to do it. Cause it's not like it's hard to make most of the food. It's not very hard at all. It's just that it takes work. It takes effort. Um, and, and I think if more kids understood that, they would be more appreciative of the food uh, and maybe more willing to eat eat some of the vegetables and fruit that they might not otherwise be willing to eat because they just have no idea. It just shows up at the grocery store. Yeah. I like the idea of investing kids into shopping and food preparation. I think you're right. I think the more they have an investment, the more likely they are to try the food because now they're one of the creators. And again, yeah, as much as we can expose kids to the process of, again, where food comes from and appreciating that, uh, I think it just opens up their minds to uh, understanding food a little bit better. And then hopefully that leads to better food habits at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. And I think it does. I mean, not, nothing's perfect and not every kid is going to work on. But regardless of anything, understanding where food comes from makes a huge difference. You should understand. You should know how to plant your own food and, and how to get it. You should realize that you can just plant a seed in some soil and give it some water and some sunlight and you will get it food. <laughs> like That is how it works. But I, I think most people don't really realize this. I mean, there's obviously a lot that goes into those couple of weeks or months in between, but it's actually not that hard. And you've, you, you, I have a garden at home and, and after doing it, it's like you have a lot of joy from it. You, you gain a lot of joy from it. You have a lot of appreciation for 
wow, like it took a lot of work to get this tomato. <laughs> yeah, until the animal comes in and eats that ripe tomato. <laughs> yeah, and they put all the time. But that's what it's supposed to happen, right? Like yeah. it's not supposed to not eat it. I mean, they're out there, you know. So that 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 also goes back to your appreciation for a farmer, right? Like how much goes yeah. into what they have to do. Yeah. You know, I want to talk about something that, uh, gosh, I, maybe it's a little bit controversial. I, I hope not. But I, I see it again as another big obstacle for parents, and it's around electronics. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the data that I've read when kids are exposed to iPhones and iPads, particularly under the age of two, in terms of what it does for their development, what it might do to their brain. You know, what are your thoughts about, you know, I will talk about electronics, uh, but maybe even broader to the effect of EMF on children and their developing brains. You know, is it is it a problem that you see in your practice? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I I think it's a problem. I think it's much more of a problem than we realize, and I think it's something that over the next 10, 20 years, we're we're going to become more aware of how much of a problem it is. I don't think it's the problem as in like, oh, you use your your cell phone and it gives you cancer or something like that. I don't think we're we're anywhere near that point. But I do think that we're made up of of molecules, right? We're made up of um, atoms and and those kinds of things. And so the the electromagnetic waves, the the energy it affects us, just like the moon affects the tides, right? I, I think that there are some effects there, and at at some point the signals are going to get strong enough, if not already, that it's going to affect more and more humans. There's no way around that. I mean, we're seeing the first signs and symptoms of that in terms of EMFs, but I just don't think we really realize it yet because it's a very hard thing to study. And we're just at the beginning of even recognizing that it could be a problem. So to me, I think you take the precautionary principle and you assume that it could be mildly dangerous, maybe more so, but who knows? So you just minimize it around your head, minimize it around your brain, try not to put it right up against you as much as you can. I always recommend to, to families not to keep it in their kids' rooms. Don't put it by your bed. Don't keep it by your head. And if you keep it away from you most of the day, then at least that minimizes most of the risk. And, and probably it's a, it's a small risk at this point anyway. So if you're doing those kind of things, you're, you're probably good enough for now. So yeah, I, I do think that there is something there. I think we're going to figure that out over time. I don't see how it couldn't affect us. It doesn't make any sense to me that I'm sure it does affect you. Just does it affect you enough to cause a problem? I don't know. Uh, but I would imagine in certain individuals that are more susceptible as things get stronger, it will start affecting us more and more. Maybe it already is. Maybe we just we don't really realize what the effects are. Um, but we've seen it with with animals around you know, 4G towers, 5G towers and bees and other things like that. So if it's affecting other animals, it's probably affecting us, too. Um, and there have been some, you know, case reports of like you put it on a school, and then there's a higher risk of some complications, and they and they put it in a certain area, and you notice a certain kind of a disease or cancer spiking up, and maybe that has to do with other factors in the area. We don't really know, but it, it seems like there are lots more case reports of of concerns, at least. At least there are signals. So to me, that's a that's something that I would take seriously. I personally take it seriously, and, and it's something we should be watching more as as we go. So that's kind of the the first part of that question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I see so many parents, you know, the the iPhone, the iPad has become a great babysitter when you just need sometimes for your child to be occupied while parents are trying to do something else. I mean, I see that sometimes when they come in my office, you know, particularly for the younger children, they'll give them the iPhone, iPad just to watch a movie, a video while, you know, we're trying to have a conversation. And again, I don't know that it's all bad, 
but I do worry about the amount of screen time that kids get, particularly younger kids. You know, we know that the blue light that comes off it can definitely mess with our sleep pattern. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess, uh, is there a, an age where maybe it's not appropriate at all? Uh, or is it really just about trying to limit that time? What do you think? The American Academy of Pediatrics pretty has pretty strong recommendations around minimizing screen time under two years old or under one years old. So they say none or, or very minimal. So that's that's the strongest recommendation. That's not practical. I don't know. I, people are not doing that. They're not having their kids with zero screen time for the most part. I think that's fine if you want to do that. There, I don't I don't see any downside to not having your kids on screens under two, but I, I think that's probably not practical. I think at least at that age, you just want to minimize it uh, you know, to the bare minimum. You should not be putting them in front of a screen instead of being a parent, instead of being there. I think if you need to go to the bathroom for a second, then then a screen's on in the background. That's not a big deal. If they're seeing some educational content while you're on a long car ride or in a plane, I think that's fine. I, I personally think that the reality is screens are here. They're a part of our lives and they're not going anywhere. And so to have kids avoid screens doesn't really make sense to me because especially if you're using it, if you're on your phone, if you're watching TV, they're going to see it. And so at least giving them some educational content uh, can be helpful. We know from the research, which is still, there's still not a ton of research in this field, but there's certainly some that passive learning is nowhere near as good as active learning. So you're not going to learn as well from watching a screen as you are from a teacher or a parent. That doesn't mean you can't learn anything. And certainly there are some resources that are much better than others. And the, the main show that has research is Sesame Street. And, and, and kids that watch Sesame actually perform better at a lot of academic tasks than kids that don't. So as you're getting older, watching good academic TV or shows or things on screens probably does have some benefit, not as much as um, active learning. But if you are replacing a screaming tantrum fit in the car with watching an academic program on an iPad, that's probably better. I think, especially for everybody's sanity, if you can be a better parent all the rest of the time. So I think it's a balance and not using it too often and making sure that you're using it for the right reasons. But I don't personally have any problem with parents using screens in appropriate situations some of the time, especially for for travel and, and things like that, and especially to keep the stress level of the home down. Because I think if if you have breaks every now and again, that's going to make you a better parent and a more active and engaged parent when you are able to be engaged. And if you need those you know, 20 minutes to go cook dinner or whatever and, and putting them in front of the screen as a five-year-old gives you those 20 minutes and they played all the rest of, they've been to the playground all day or they went to school now they're coming home instead of running around and, and, and being crazy and causing issues and causing you a screaming match 20 minutes of tv time is probably okay it's probably better but if that's as opposed to you going outside and going for a walk that's not better in my opinion so i think it depends on what you're doing and what you're what you're replacing and 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 that's what i've heard a lot of the the screen time experts say it's just think about what you're replacing if you're replacing activity that's not good if you're replacing uh, a screaming match that's probably okay if you're if you're replacing them doing something that's not active and that's not going to be educational then maybe an educational program is actually better i couldn't agree more <laughs> well i know you, you and i could talk all day there's just so many aspects i think of children's health that uh, we just don't have time to touch on but i, I want to leave the audience with Maybe your top three tips of raising amazing children. Top three tips. So I would say in terms of, well, number one overall is that we don't focus on prevention enough. I think that's so important. 
Chronic disease rates are skyrocketing. It's terrifying what's going on. And we need to get back to basics. I call it the seeds of health or the foundations of health. So stress, exercise, environment and toxins, diet and sleep, the basic things that we know make a huge difference. We have to get back to that, especially like we talked about today a lot, diet and toxins. Those are two things that you have a ton of control over. And so if you can think about those things and make some small changes, it makes a big difference. You do not have to go back and take all the food out of your pantry and throw everything away and never eat a piece of cake again. That's not my philosophy. I think that it's just about making small changes and every little bit helps. And if you make one small change here and one small change here, then that adds up to a big difference. And if you're mindful of the choices that you make, then then that goes a long way. That's going to be a big answer. Number one, smaller answer. Number two would be read food labels. I would say that of anything that makes a big difference in your life will be the most important in terms of making a small change for health. Everything that you buy, read the label. If it has a long chemical name, it's probably not good for you. And if it has words that you actually know, then it's much more likely to be good for you. So at least if you can make those changes and buy a bag of chips with actual words that you know, it's going to be better than a bag of chips with a bunch of chemicals. And then you can kind of work your way forward. You can move move towards broccoli. It doesn't have to go from chips to broccoli in day one, but you can go from crappy chips to better chips. And at least that's a small change that's going to improve the health a little bit. And then finally, I would say third tip is to remove as many toxins as you can. So again, going back to labels reading, but even just more just thinking about things, if you're buying them clothes, what are you spraying your floors with? What are you cleaning your house with? What makeup are you using? What What is in their environment? What are they breathing? What are you were talking about air fresheners? Like, are you using chemically air fresheners or, or candles? Or do you use like um, an essential oil uh, or something like that? There are ways that you can still keep your house clean and smelling fresh and be amazing without plugging in a, a, a you know big brand air freshener. So if you think about those little things, it can, it could be something where you save money. It's not just about spending more money. Sometimes things can be more expensive, but for the most part, you can do things that are actually cheaper and that are healthier. Um, and then you can focus where you're spending more money on certain areas where um, these are things that you find very important for your health, but it comes back to thinking about these things. If you, if you're not thinking about health, when you're making decisions, you won't do it. But if you have the mindset, when you go to the, sh- the grocery store of, okay, I want to make sure I buy things that keep my family healthy. What are real products that I can actually buy that are real food, or at least as close to it as, as real food as you can get, then that's going to go a long way for most people. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I think these are very simple, easy things to do that people can do. And again, this is something that you have control over a lot of this. So you're not at the the whim of someone else that has to do something for you. This is something that you can do, which is ultimately going to help the health of you, your child, the whole family. So uh, I just like that it's very reasonable and practical. Uh, I want to share with the audience, you know, you've got a series of classes, masterclasses, your website's raisingamazingplus.com. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes, but, you know, I was looking through your website earlier and I really love that you've got a bunch of different courses around, you know, holistic pediatrics and parenting tips. And uh, gosh, I'm going to just take a quick screen here. So yeah, holistic pediatrics, uh, stressless parenting, pregnancy and newborns, uh, holistic modalities, and they're all very reasonably priced, inexpensive. So I know people are going to get a lot of great content uh, that, you know, you can just download on your computer, watch it at home, do it on your own schedule. 
Uh, so is there anything else you'd like to say about uh, your website that people should know? Sure. Thanks. Yeah. So for me, one of the big things was I just want to share what I've been talking about in the office more. And so that's what really led me to start making courses and, and programs. And it's pretty you know, easy to go through, not very long. Cause I know everyone that's watching this is going to be parents for the most part. So there's only so much time that you have. Um, the latest course that I put together was on, um, so it's on for natural parents, naturally minded parents, which I know is a lot of your audience and navigating the, the medical system, which is not so naturally minded. So we talk about a lot of the, the questions that I get in my office from parents, um, especially for those that are trying to navigate the medical system and, and how to do that with a, with a natural perspective. And, you know, if you're not seeing me and you're trying to look into like, oh, how do I find a practitioner that's integrative minded? Or how do I talk to my doctor who might not be so naturally minded about something that I've found? So we, we get into a lot of that in that program. And then the other courses, like you said, there's like a holistic pediatric course. So we talk about like coughs and colds and runny noses and rashes and all the things that you're going to uh, be exposed to. And then some of the things you can think about around what to do about those. So there, there's a bunch of, of different courses and people can explore and, and have fun. And the other big place that people usually find me is on Instagram uh, at Dr. Joel Gator. And I'll, I'll leave you with the, the question that people always ask me about, which is where does Gator come from? It's not a Florida thing. It's actually a wife thing. My la my wife's last name's Intelligator. And so people thought it was funny and started calling me Dr. Gator. And it kind of stuck. Not that I'm anything against Florida. I grew up in Toronto. It's not a Florida thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering myself. I didn't ask, but uh, <laughs> thanks for letting us all know. <laughs> no problem. So, right, yeah, guys, much. it's uh, raisingamazingplus.com. Again, we're going to put a link in the show notes. So definitely check it out. If you want more information, if you want to become more educated on how to be a better parent, how to help manage your ch child naturally, uh, there's a lot of really fantastic information here, and I know you'll want to check it out. So, Dr. Joel, I really appreciate you spending time with us today. And, uh, and grateful that you were able to share all your knowledge with us. Thank you.